This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca. And make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. Welcome Pamela Zevit, who's a biologist and is going to be speaking about evidence for democracy. Thank you. All right, good morning, everyone. Thank you. All right, so I am prone to, to migrate a bit when I talk, but I'm tethered now. So um, the other thing is I just returned from Italy on Tuesday night, so my time zone sort of circadian rhythm has not completely adjusted. Um, I, it's not that I'm going to freeze up, but I may pause once in a while because my brain is still a little bit tired uh, from multiple time zone crossings. So I have a question to ask everyone. Now, I did a presentation to this group way back in spring 2014. Does anybody remember that? Yeah. Okay, it's good to know. You never know how much an organization changes over over time. So. Uh, well, since that time, there's obviously been a lot of changes, and I would say that the majority of those changes have been condensed down uh, pretty much into the last eight months or so. Okay? We're talking about some major shifts that happened in the fall of 2015. So I'm going to do a little bit of backtracking, uh, a little bit of background information uh, about both the organization, but also sort of the legacy that we've been working with. and. Uh, the push that the organization that I volunteered with, Evidence for Democracy, was doing. Uh, some of you may be actually quite uh, intimately familiar with that, depending on your level of support or involvement with that organization. Uh, my background with Evidence for Democracy is that uh, I'm a professional biologist. I'm a conservation biologist. I work on endangered species issues here in the Lower Mainland. But I was very concerned about what was happening with a lot of my colleagues in the public service sector, mainly in the federal government. Uh, over the last decade or so, and I kept wondering, well, is there anything that I can do, any way that I can raise my voice? So I was actually contacted in 2013, we'll talk a little bit of the background of that, um, by an organization called Evidence for Democracy who said, hey, you know, we're trying to do some rabble-rousing, we want to get rallies going uh, around evidence-based decision-making and standing up for science in Canada. Uh, your name is on a list somewhere, and would you be interested? So that's how I got sucked in to the organization. I've been volunteering here on the sort of rallying the West Coast side of things ever since. So it's the last three years, and actually, it's hard to believe that that much time has actually uh, passed by. So I want to focus the talk on, on this concept. Now, I expect that as an audience, you're already pretty much the choir when it comes to the discussions that we're going to be having. I do want to pose some questions to you during the talk, the odd little sort of uh, tangential discussion, which I'll ask you to park, and then part of uh, when I'm completed the talk, um, I want to bring those things back and maybe have a little bit of discussion, uh, partly because it's good to actually uh, garner some input from varying audiences on, on the perspectives on certain issues. So the focus is going to be about why science is important to the issue of democracy, and, and we can say in Canada, but more broadly in society in general. And I'm going to be following these three basic um, pathways in regards to talking and a lot of its background information, bringing us up to the present day as to what's happening with the discussion in Canada. There's, this is one of the first slides where I'm going to ask you to create sort of a parking lot issue on a particular comment here. 
I would say again that for this audience, you're very well on board with the notion that, that science is really integral to decision-making processes. Um, although many of us are guided by personal belief systems, which is what morals are all about, as a professional biologist, I te teach professional ethics to other biologists, which is more focused on the um, accountability within a community of practice. And ethics and morals are often quite intertwined uh, in regards to how people actually interpret those two things. They do have separate root words, um, mores for morals, um, ethics is more to do with ethos or sort of a community belief system, which everybody agrees to. And ethics is almost, uh, almost more intrinsically tied to lawmaking over time. Um, versus morals, which has had a same similar influence, but um, tends to be more on the individual belief system or human. Now that second quote up there about policymakers and the navigators, they have to make decisions. Scientists are the math makers. Now that's one of those parking lot things I'm gonna ask you about. Um, because as a biologist in British Columbia, and as part of getting involved in evidence for democracy, the whole question arose as to what is the role not just of science and society, but as scientists, what is our role? What is our responsibility to society? Um, are we just there to provide the facts so that decision makers are making informed decisions, or do we have a greater role to actually be advocates, which is quite antithetical um, to science over time. I mean, if you look historically, a lot of scientists who have spoken up um, have actually been destroyed in many ways, or you go back into more historic times, some of them have actually ended up being executed um, for actually speaking up on the science. Think about Galileo, right, in regards to uh, speaking up about the issue of how the universe actually works. Um, so I want to actually bring that one back after I've finished because I want to hear your feedback on that. So when we look about the past 10 years, I add a little plus sign in there because although we, we might like to um, malign the conservative government over the last decade as to the uh, effects that it's had on science in Canada, and that's had a ripple effect internationally as well as to um, how the international community or the international stage has actually viewed the ability of science and scientists to be pervade across the board within our country. You can't just vilify one government in time. It's, it's been an issue that's cyclical in regards to how science is supported in this country, um, how science within the public service is supported within Canada, and governments over time have gone up and down in regards to that. Some have been better than others. I think that we, we do feel, though, as a community that the last 10 years, that legacy has been significantly torturous, um, more so than maybe it has been in the past, or at least for within my lifetime of memory as a, a practitioner. What are the implications of that? When we erode the ability to have informed decision-making within uh, government and within our communities as a whole, what are the implications of those things? And what happens when we actually take uh, robust science and good evidence out of the decision-making process within uh, policy? And I want you to think about not just the issue of federal policy. Uh, this has implications if you've ever been involved. Uh, I live in Coquitlam. I once in a while do presentations to council, and it's still a head-banging issue once in a while because I'm dealing with a lot of ideological issues uh, and personal agendas, and that happens at any political level. And one of the messages I'm going to leave you with at the end is about the fact that 
Um, if you really want to see change happen, you actually have to be part of the voice that gets raised on that. So if you've ever been involved in doing delegations to council at the local level, that's a great way to start, actually, to find out about how you can actually provide a more informed voice in policymaking. You're probably familiar with this issue. Um, definitely the cartooning of this, it, it may you know, raise a chuckle, but it's a serious issue. And this is one of the key things that happened over time, at least for the public service in Canada. Um, the fact that government scientists had handlers, they weren't allowed to actually present publicly funded research in international forums, let alone uh, the whole fiasco about media being able to contact scientists in Canada um, that were working for the public service and working on some pretty important research, whether it was climate change, or uh, medical therapeutics, whole realm of things which were suddenly put into a black hole because many of the scientists were unable to actually present their findings or share that information. Um, I have personal experience with that. In around 2007, uh, I was part of an advisory committee at the city of Coquitlam. We were looking on, at putting on a cosmetic pesticide ban uh, within the municipality. And I happened to have been participating over the previous couple of years in a study that an Environment Canada colleague was working on in regards to looking at the impacts of pesticides on uh, freshwater fisheries. And they were testing across Canada, but they were also actually using a watershed that I lived in in Coquitlam as one of the case studies. And I'm going, hey, I've got some really good local information. You know, here's some research that's been done. It shows that there are potential impacts in regards to the receiving environment when pesticides get into freshwater environments. Uh, let me call up my colleague and see if we can actually get a hold of the study. I'd like to know where it's at anyway, because I was involved with it. And it was bone chilling to have a conversation with someone who's whispering on the other end of the phone and gets up and closes the door to their office because they don't want anybody to know that they're having a discussion about their research with someone from the public. And on top of that, they couldn't release the information. Now I'm going, hey, you know, I put a lot of volunteer time into this as, as a fellow scientist, and what are you telling me? We need this because it's going to be a major um, impetus for whether or not my council makes a decision to ban cosmetic pesticides in my municipality. So what we did was we circumvented the system and actually we went to the academic research partner on that project who was able to publish that information to get the study, and that was actually the tipping point for council. They couldn't refute the evidence that was being presented to them. Now, think about the hurdles that I had to go through as a relatively well-informed member of the public. Can you imagine the average citizen wanting to get publicly funded research from government? Um, it was just basically like going through a labyrinth for most people. They wouldn't have known who to contact directly, let alone being, you know, put through the, the usual, oh, go contact that, go contact that, sorry, I can't talk to you, uh, sort of thing. And um, the federal government at the time actually kind of got wind of this loophole in regards to the fact that academic partners could actually release that information, because they weren't fettered uh, by what was happening within the public service. Um, and they actually tried to close that door um, within the last couple of years before they were defeated. So it got worse and worse. And as I said, you know, as, as a scientist, for me, I'm going, it's time. I can't be quiet about these issues anymore. 
so in october two thousand and fourteen year and a half ago so think about when this information was being released the momentum was starting and as i said two thousand and thirteen two thousand twelve two thousand and thirteen were kind of tipping points in regards to scientists becoming much more involved and much more vocal about what was happening in canada but the professional institute of the public service of canada released this study and what's most disconcerting to me is that some of these stats have real implications for public safety fifty percent had seen public health and safety compromised by political interference in science so this is the federal public service having been surveyed forty eight percent had said that they'd seen information withheld causing the public or government to be misled or misinformed and forty three percent have been asked to exclude or alter information in government documents for non-scientific reasons now as a professional biologist in british columbia i'm actually bound legislatively by provincial legislation called by biology act the unfortunate thing is that most public servants at least in the federal service a little bit different in the provincial service but most scientists other than maybe engineers are not really bound or required by their job descriptions to be part of a legislated profession so while a lot of provincial biologists may be professional registered professional biologists at the federal level you don't see them and that legislation is a major shield for me because i cannot hold that as a legislative requirement under my code of ethics and under the college of biology act these sorts of fettering or hindrances that would be applied would actually force me into a conflict of interest situation but most federal services of the servants are not necessarily bound by being part of professional organizations because it's not required of them and that hasn't changed any by the way and it may not change any and again other than the engineers that really is a huge black hole in regards to helping support public service scientists to actually feel that they're supported that they have a safety net although some of the other stuff has changed recently that we'll talk about okay so again some of these things are not going to be new to you now i would find it a bit weird that the federal government of the time would want to actually be inhibiting the disclosure about changes in sea ice because they're such a strong advocate or at least were for maximizing opportunities in the northwest passage right it was going to be the new way for transportation so the last federal government to be a bit cynical kind of saw the benefits of climate change right reduce arctic sea ice was going to allow for a lot of shipping routes to open up but they actually didn't want any government scientists talking about that in an overt manner because it would put a negative spin on things and who has actually seen the documentary from the fifth estate science of the labs okay so just a couple of people it's a couple of years old now but i would suggest it's maybe in the future it's available online and i think that evidence for democracy can get you a copy as well i have one floating around that i can probably share with you i don't know about the copyright issues it was produced by the cbc and it talked about you know a lot of figures who have actually become became martyrs for the cause because they were speaking out about what was happening to publicly funded science in canada i would actually urge you to take a look at that it does provide some really important background information about this whole situation that we're talking about oh you did so but only two of you have seen it 
The others were asleep. Okay. Uh, again, the whole now, you know, a lot of a lot of um, media spin was put on this, the, the issue about book burning and things like that. Uh, that didn't occur. The media loves to run with things, and that's another issue too. That for us as science professionals, we really have to be careful when we're having conversations with the media that the information is translated effectively, uh, that it doesn't actually get turned into propaganda because that actually really works against what we're trying to do. Um, and I would suggest as well that um, if you ever have an opportunity, you know, take a look at how the media actually pervades information that's really relevant right now. Um, sound bites are very quick. Most reporters need to have stuff within 24 hours. They don't necessarily have the time to do really rigorous background checks on the information. Um, and if you can't get a hold of uh, authorities on a subject matter, specialists like government scientists, you're going to go to the next person and you can't always be guaranteed that they're providing you with effective or really robust information. But this was an issue. So no matter how the media may have spun this one, it was a huge issue. And I know when I started in the provincial government service in my past life, I spent two years working on a publicly funded fisheries library uh, for the province. And um, you know, when we lose that information, it's such a huge void in our knowledge ability. But it's also just the legacy of information. So you don't have somebody who has the ability to do good screening of data when you're talking about uh, getting rid of information within a library. And of course, the federal government at the time promised that everything would be appropriately scanned and digitized and made available to the public. Um, I don't think we've seen that yet. And how much information actually got lost as part of this process, we'll probably never know. Um, we do know that some original documents, like we're talking about data that goes back to the 1800s, which would probably be really critical when you're looking at things like research on climate change. How has uh, fish and wildlife stocks been affected over time? Those sorts of important research. How has the weather changed over time? Agriculturally, how have crop returns changed over time? A lot of libraries were decimated by what was happening, but the whole notion of these are really sort of frivolous luxuries. Society doesn't really need to have data portals like these where you can go and read stuff and it's just a few researchers who are using that information anyway. So we have a lot of recovery things that we have to deal with now. And I don't think we're ever probably going to recover from this because we're never going to know how much information is lost as part of this process. I would add that um, it wasn't just the libraries. There was a lot of research facilities that were closed as well as part of cost-cutting measures. They just were considered extraneous to the need of government. Um, so other than the fact that a lot of people were basically put out on the bread line, so to speak, a lot of government scientists lost their jobs, um, we, we just lost that huge knowledge base. Right? It's a huge brain drain within the public service when you lose that much information and you start closing research facilities simply because you don't believe that they're really valuable anymore. And the whole funding issue. So this is science and technology funding through various sectors within the government. Um, what's really interesting is that funding in the space side of things went up. Um, now maybe that's just because PR-wise it actually sells better actually be investing in um, 
space agency. Uh, certainly, celebrities like Chris Hadfield are a good example of someone who's done a really great job of promoting uh, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, that, that whole field in regards to a, a young generation of people who are taking much more interest in science probably because of the work that he did. So there are benefits sometimes in regards to how government changes its funding allocation. But when you look at all the, the basically the, the pink areas, those are all uh, government agencies that have had their funding decimated over time. We'll have a discussion as to whether or not that's really changed in the last um, six months or so, um, now that we've had a big regime shift in Ottawa. Uh, the other thing that I'm briefly going to touch on was the issue of how publicly funded basic research was dealt with. Um, the last government had a major focus on research and development, but in science and technology, and it was really more about technology that had economic value. Now, if you had talked to medical professionals or researchers 100 years ago and said, we're going to cut your funding, think about all of the innovations and all of the eureka moments that have happened over the last 100, 150 years that occurred because a particular individual wanted to investigate something that really didn't have economic viability in it. Think about all of the vaccines that we have, um, all of the uh, inventions that we're relying on now technologically. Researchers were working on those because they knew they were going to make a lot of money out of it or that because government was funding it to make a lot of money out of it. They did it because it was to better human society. They wanted to make change within human society that was going to be a benefit. Uh, the government in the last decade really didn't see that light. All they saw was that if we put money into technology that is going to have economic value, that's really where we need to focus our, our interests. So all the basic research that was happening, uh, especially at the academic levels, uh, really was decimated quite a bit. And for me as a conservation biologist, you can imagine that working on anything within the natural resource sector that might demonstrate that what government wanted to do in policy, whether it was um, petroleum development or other types of natural resource extraction, uh, if we actually were doing research that showed that that work needed to be done differently or that it was going to have profound impacts on the receiving environment, it wasn't going to get funded. Um, and one of the personalities from Silence of the Labs, which is Dr. Peter Ross, who's now working for the Vancouver Aquarium, um, he worked at the Ocean Sciences Center on Vancouver Island. It's in um, North Saanich. And it's near the airport, if you're familiar with the landscape there. Uh, his whole program was cut, mainly because he was working on toxicology and pollutant issues um, uh, around the Pacific area. And, of course, our past government really wanted to push for pipelines and tanker traffic. And so what are the implications of major oil spills? What about pollutants in the receiving environment of all the actions that government really wanted to support? Um, the best way to actually silence that issue is to get rid of the researchers who are working on that. They can raise flags. And this talk is not meant to actually create, uh, it's a dull day outside. I didn't want to make it any more depressing. <laughs> um, because we do have some positive outcomes. Um, we've kind of like made it past the hurdle of, of 10 years and we've managed to survive. Um, one of the other things, of course, that um, 
we tend to forget about focusing on is the issue of things like medical therapeutics research that's happening u b c has a huge program dealing with things like safe injection and dealing with addiction issues the previous government had a huge ideological bent against anything that would deal with drugs when it came to actually helping those who had drug addictions so I think everyone's familiar with insight which is a safe injection site in Vancouver there were there was a really precedent-setting court case because the government kept trying to shut them down and yanking their funding but they actually won in court so there was a judicial precedent set that actually was one in their favor that silenced the government thankfully and now just recently Trudeau I think this past week if I recall the news is talking about infusing more dollars into creating more safe injection sites because as Trudeau said he's kind of like jumped on the bandwagon you know evidence-based decision-making is really important and the evidence demonstrates that actually helping those with drug addictions in this way is is having a beneficial effect in society yes that's right and the point is that that all the research shows that those types of facilities they work they do have a beneficial effect they do reduce costs over time to society in dealing with those that have drug addiction issues and the reason that the past government ended up losing in court is because all they were touting was one somewhat maligned report that had very faulty research done on it that of course supported their position that safe injection sites don't work but that was actually tossed out so that is kind of typical when a government actually starts using information that it spins in its favor that can't stand up to scrutiny the challenges that we end up dealing with and why it's really important to constantly have to hold them their feet to the fire on these issues I know that from my own area of practice there are a number of court cases to actually force the federal government to follow its own laws under species at risk conservation and we're still dealing with the legacy of that right now but things have improved quite a bit so one month before the election McLean's magazine came out with this article which was a really nice way of it was like a beautiful gift wrap package of all things that have been happening over the last decade all of the implications in regards to policymaking that the previous federal government had been doing and what impact was that having on society in Canada why it was really important to ensure that we are using the most up-to-date information I'm assuming everybody in this room filled out their census right if you didn't you broke the law actually I just noticed in my partner building a couple of people had notices on their door so they're actually tracking people in regards to whether or not they completed their sentence their census their sentence so the long-form census I know a few people who did anybody do a long-form census here all right okay I was disappointed I only got the short version of it so that was one of the things that the federal government that's recently been elected they said that they would bring back a long-form census so that information is really valuable again let's tie it back to our own local communities governments at least at the local level need that really detailed data so that they can ensure 
they're effectively applying for funding from the federal government and from the province to say we have shortcomings in social services these are the needs within our community and here's the information to back that up i know that in the past 10 years what had happened with the nixie and the long-form census in canada was that a number of communities didn't have up-to-date information to be able to lobby to get things like transfer funding from the federal government so social services were actually being impacted by that because they couldn't prove that they needed certain things based on the demographics within their community these are ripple effects and we don't actually realize that these things are happening when governments start to ignore information and policy so i'm going to sum it up for you in this one slide why science is actually so important if we want to actually uphold a democratic a democratic tenant within society we basically need to have this equation in place if you start actually removing any one of those things we're no longer functioning as a democratic society now all of those things can cycle over time sometimes some of them are supported better than others but we need to have all of these pieces in place to actually ensure that we're functioning properly i'd be curious is a question for you if you think about what's happening in the united states right now whether or not they actually meet this test or not just park that one and then think about potentially what will happen after november right we also need to make sure that our citizens informed it's not just the issue of accountability and transparency within policy decision making within our decision makers using evidence we also need to make sure that we're adequately informed and i'll go back to the issue of media and more specifically social media it's really easy in this day and age to get to go astray based on the information that you get and it doesn't matter you could have a phd education doesn't necessarily dictate how intelligent or how informed you are and i see this because within a number of my colleagues that i work with who i actually am connected through social media the way that they will actually repost information without doing fact checking now these are well-informed people they're professionals but they still end up getting tripped up by more of an issue of emotion rather than taking a look at the information that's being provided to them and say should i question this or not so we have a duty right it's a duty of care as citizens to actually make sure that we're questioning information that's being provided to us that we're doing our best to actually make sure that it's it's robust and that it's accurate and also we have to rely on others to help us you know we can't just say well i know everything and this is my opinion right because you're welcome to your own opinion you're just not welcome to make up your own facts and last but now not least we need to actually ensure that our decision makers realize that they have a transparency and accountability responsibility now we can often grumble about that and i think within you know our family situations or amongst friends and within our colleagues we often do grumble about those issues but how often are we actually doing something about it making sure that it actually is systemic that it's built into our decision making processes so i'm going to do a little bit of backtracking because all of this over the last decade is what galvanized a group of 
humble scientist to actually say enough is enough. Now, it was actually moving quite a bit faster in the United States because they'd been dealing with um, the Bush era for quite some time. A lot of censuring of science has happened in the United States for a lot longer to some degree than it has in Canada. Um, so you had uh, people like James Hansen or Michael Mann, both climate scientists, who were standing up and getting arrested and, and doing the Civil Disobedience Act, which quite frankly is something that most scientists do not like to do. Um, I know that for me, I really struggle with the whole issue of, of being more vocal um, because I recognize that it can have implications for me work-wise. Uh, but because I don't work in the public sector, i.e. I don't work for government anymore, it was actually one of my choices to leave the provincial sector at the time because I didn't want to work for the Liberals when I got elected. Uh, that was a huge safety net issue for me because I kind of said, that's it, I'm tossing that out, I'm going to see what's going to happen, but I can't live in this particular climate anymore uh, as a professional. Um, even just the issue of getting involved and organizing a rally and standing up in, hundreds, in front of hundreds of people in downtown Vancouver and talking about these issues, I was worried about who was watching. You know, what were the implications going to be for me? Would it have you know, a tarnishing effect within my community of practice and things like that? Um, so far, nothing has actually happened, although we did joke, of course, that you know, most of us are probably on lists somewhere. But um, we try not to succumb to the paranoia too much. But in 2012, there was a group of scientists um, across Canada, some here from Simon Fraser University and the University of British Columbia, um, in varying disciplines who said, you know what, we can't take this anymore, we have to do something. So they had the death of evidence funeral procession in Ottawa in July 2012. And that gave birth to a movement which became evidence for democracy. And a year later, as I mentioned at the beginning, I got a call saying, would you help organize a rally in Vancouver? We're going to have a Stand Up for Science rally uh, across the country. Um, would you help do the one on the West Coast? Um, and the organization has been growing from that point onward. But it was kind of a, a huge sea change, right? It was a big shift because scientists, as I said, in Canada have generally not been that vocal the way they have in other countries up until now. And I think that now that the tide has changed, we're going to see that, that movement growing. Um, because there is much more of a feeling that there is support for that um, and that it's not going to end up being individuals ostracized, you know, basically crucified in the public realm taking action. So this was probably the first time in this country that I can think of in history, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that science became an election issue in Canada. Um, certainly there have been a lot of things afoot in the United States um, through the Obama administration over its, its last two tenures. And that resulted in a lot of a fairly good precedent-setting policy in the United States around whistleblowing, around the requirement that public servants in the United States publish publicly funded research within a year of its completion. And we're just kind of catching up here in Canada in regards to that. Um, the young woman who's standing in between Kennedy Stewart and I believe that is a liberal representative there um, is Katie Gibbs. So she is the founding executive director of Evidence for Democracy. Uh, she's actually been out here a few times. Um, she's 
presently on parental leave for a year and looking forward to having her come back. Um, and those of us who are volunteering our time for Evidence Democracy are helping to kind of move things along over the coming year. Uh, Scott Finley is a, uh, he's a fisheries ecologist and uh, he's in Ontario, I believe, and Elizabeth Mink, who's probably fairly familiar face to you. So they're all holding the Science Pledge, which became a huge campaign over the election through for evidence for democracy. And the media actually was very helpful in getting a lot of the words out um, with the last election that we had. But I want you to pay attention to some of the quotes that were done there by um, sort of fellow scientists. And more importantly, the middle one, there are an, there's an assumption among scientists that if you make the case, people will listen, said Professor Dufour. That's completely false. And so the question that I ask you is whether or not you feel that based on this sort of galvanizing movement among scientists to actually make science a, a paramount issue in Canadian society uh, through the last election, whether or not that was successful, and whether or not you think that actually people did wake up and start to listen to that issue in the last year. Um, and the, but the reality check is that last quote, let's face it, that elections are not won or lost on whether you're supporting science. I think that still remains true. Um, because in the priority, in the big scheme of things, you know, how important is science to the average electorate? How important is the issues that we've been talking about um, in this talk going to be important to the average citizen? Um, Evidence for Democracy wasn't the only organization that, that really started to speak out because a lot of the implications that the last federal government, uh, their policy implications were really affecting academic research. So uh, the Canadian Association for University Teachers got on board. They had their Get Science Right movement. They had a number of events here on the West Coast in, in uh, Victoria as well as Vancouver. Uh, Bob McDonald with Perks and Parks on CBC helped facilitate those. And Dipsic. Um, had a really wonderful report that came out um, talking about the issue of science vanishing within decision making in Canada. Now, it's kind of in. Oh, sorry. Um, date wise, this came out probably, I think, in early 2015. Um, it's interesting, though, that it says, one of the little media blurbs here is, Union launches political but nonpartisan campaign. Um, I, you know, that, that is somewhat true, but at the same time, I, can think, I think we can identify who they were, Pipsic was actually targeting in this particular campaign. And Evidence for Democracy started uh, its science pledge, True North Smart and Free, Smart and Free Science Pledge. Um, that is actually still something that is active, and I'll show you the active campaigns on Evidence for Democracy's website right now. <coughs> uh, I have to say, you know, when Evidence for Democracy started out in 2012, they didn't really have this, this coalescing sense of self. Um, but the, from 2014, 2015, because they had much more momentum building and a lot more people actually became involved in helping them, they did a wonderful job. I'm not just saying that because I volunteer with the organization. I do a lot of social media and extension communication with um, my own work. 
did a really wonderful job of, of communicating the messages um, to the average citizen. And I think one of the shortcomings that we have, especially as science professionals, we don't effectively communicate to the average person. Uh, we, we're really comfortable talking to other scientists about the work that we do and the stuff that we're passionate about. Um, but when it comes to communicating that to you know, the average person on the street, we lose them quite a bit. And I think E4D really understood that and, and definitely I constantly whined about that to them, that you need to be able to capture in an emotive yet uh, rigorous way the imagination of the public. Uh, and you need to do that in a way that's going to be both visually stimulating but provide information that's going to galvanize them. Um, so here are the sort of the key things that um, sort of the poster for the federal election, what Evidence for Democracy was looking to do. Um, and again, that informing the public message was, was really important as part of this. It couldn't just be seen as a special interest group, you know, screaming at government about an issue that is really not going to engage the rest of society. And one thing I know from my own work is you can't just whine and complain about what's wrong with things. You actually have to offer solutions. You have to offer the flip side of things. Um, because most people, if you think about climate change conversations, everybody tunes out very quickly when we talk about the ap apocalyptic eventuality. Um, if you don't offer solutions, you don't offer ways to actually change the way that we do business or think differently, you're going to lose your audience very quickly. The other important thing was to actually get public commitment, that pledge part of things. It's, it's one thing to pledge individually, but to get politicians to actually come out and say where they stand, it's very hard. You know, I challenge any of you in the next municipal election to go to any one of the town hall meetings or the candidates' meetings that they have and try to get a candidate to actually say exactly where they stand on something. It's wonderful how they dance around stuff. Um, so this was actually a mechanism um, to get them to fess up to things and say, yeah, this is exactly what we believe in and this is what we're going to fight for. So part of that is kind of a two-fold or two-pronged approach. Um, these were the, the things that were really important that Evidence for Democracy was saying, are you willing to support this? Um, we really haven't had a parliamentary science officer in the past, but to actually have a voice that guides government on science policy is, is very important. A trusted voice that's independent. And the second recommendation was to make sure that the policies around communication by government sciences, scientists uh, provided a supportive framework for openness and transparency and the ability to have public discourse around publicly funded research. Um, so go back to that cartoon about scientists being muzzled, that this was not going to be the way that business was continuing in Canada when it came to public service. And one of the um, projects that Evidence for Democracy did uh, in early 2015 um, was a number of us actually contributed to reviewing the communications policies within government um, because every department has a slightly different communication policy and then there's sort of the uber communication policy that government has as a whole. So there was a research, comparative research that came up from Evidence for Democracy took a look at what actually uh, individual public servants were being told that they had to do when it came to communication. 
And again, it was very sobering, um, it was very censuring and fettering. Um, and we were trying to more specifically find out where was science in all of this language. Um, when it came to communicating science issues, you know, what were public servants being told that they could or could not do? Um, and that the policies actually were very inhibiting. It was pretty evident in the language, although sometimes it was very subtle. So I'm just going to actually show the Liberal Party's response uh, to evidence for democracy's questions about what will you do, um, because they they won the day. So um, the NDP were very similar, as was the Green Party. The Conservative Party did not actually respond to this. Um, so here's what the Liberal government pledged that they would do revoking the rules and regulations that muzzle government scientists. Now, that has actually changed somewhat since October. Um, a number of my colleagues that I work with in the federal government service, they are somewhat more liberated to have public discussions and to talk to media. It hasn't changed completely, though. And I, I think it's really important to recognize that when you have a huge regime shift, again, think about the change from Bush to Obama in the United States dealt with 10 years of sort of a decimation of the public service and um, radical alteration of policy in Canada. It's not going to happen in the first year. It may take more than a couple of years. I get asked questions about, oh, so you know, you work on endangered species. Do you see more funding coming in? Um, because I work for a nonprofit and we're, we're grant driven for the most part. And I keep telling them no, and it's actually going to take a while before we see a trickle down effect uh, with how the federal government is actually supporting science in Canada. Uh, the funding issues. So this isn't just about basic research. It's about having departmental funding. And uh, Fisheries and Oceans, Environment Canada, the, Nat or the National Park System, sorry, Parks Canada, um, were all pretty badly hit in the last decade. Now, just within the last six months, the federal government has infused money back into fisheries and oceans. There's, it was kind of a hiring spree that was going on there. Um, but I think it remains to be seen how the federal government is actually going to um, follow up on this particular pledge that they made. And that, toast, it, that actually ties to the ocean science and monitoring programs. Again, those are programs that were completely cut. Like they were, they're an extinct species in the federal government. Uh, right now, and is whether or not we're actually going to see those things resurrected. Uh, we still haven't seen a chief science officer, so that's one thing that um, is still really important to actually push for. And being willing to take individual action. So as part of the previous election, I took the science pledge and I published this picture on social media. And again, that was actually a pretty scary thing for me. As much as I, I you know, had spent a few years getting accustomed to speaking publicly about these issues, I kept thinking again, it's like, oh gosh, is it okay? Like, I'm, I'm somehow am I, you know, enacting some transgression professionally um, by taking this pledge publicly. But, you know, the point is that nothing's going to actually change if you're not actually the role model for others. Um, so there is sort of this issue about science policy and society 101, some of the things that you have to do, and of course it does start with the individual quite a bit. Um, you can still download the pledge, take a picture of yourself, signing it, and post it on social media if you want to. Um, and that is still available on the Evidence for Democracy website. And again, that leadership within your own community, I think as an organization, obviously you've been very active for quite some, how long is 
1984. That's quite a long time for an organization to have sustained itself, especially a nonprofit that's working on social issues. So it's a question about you know how you represent yourself to others, both individually and as an organization. Right, you're the community or collective. You have a particular uh, mandate that you focus on, and how well do you represent that? How well does it align with the thinking of others that you're trying to engage and influence? And some other tips in regards to pushing this particular mandate forward. Um, we can't rest simply because there's been a successful regime change in Ottawa. Uh, and that's the unfortunate thing, and that, that goes without saying for any social justice or environmental justice issues, anything that is constantly battling a particular ideology uh, or especially special interests that have ties to economic development within society. Um, it's going to be a constant need to hold the feet to the fire of our decision makers. And I, again, I'm going to really strongly urge that that is not just a federal issue, that that happens at all levels of policy making and decision making within society. It's important to be good representatives, representatives when you're actually engaging with decision makers. Um, it often becomes really difficult not to be confrontational on these issues. Um, it's important to remain calm, take deep breaths, step back when you need to. Uh, and that go also goes with how you interact with others. It's not just the decision making side of stuff like politicians. Uh, raising awareness. Um, obviously, the work that you were doing in Abbotsford, was it? Okay, so that's a good example, right? Where you're, you're lobbying, you're doing petitioning um, on particular things that are really important to the mandate of your organization. Um, social media can be an incredible benefit if used wisely or a horrible undermining curse. Um, and that's something that when I talk to other professional practitioners, you know, I warn them about, again, the, the sort of the legacy you can live and die on social media in regards to your reputation very quickly. So it's really important to use that wisely. Um, one thing that we don't often do, and this ties back to some of the work that I do on conservation, is to acknowledge and reward good decision-making. We tend to complain a lot about stuff that isn't working or things that we feel is being done wrongly, but how often do we actually congratulate decision makers on good policy decisions. It's really important to actually have that sort of corollary added to our toolkits. Of course, the, the hurdle there is actually getting political in the first place. Now, for me, I'm actually, I don't know if I'm lucky or not, but um, I live in a, a federal provincial riding that's represented by NDP at both levels. Um, that's, the, for me, the closest ideologically that that works um, if we had a really good robust representative from liberal or green in my riding provincially or federally I would probably think about you know, changing horses um, but it, it's all about what you ensure sort of holistically and it's hard sometimes because I happen to really like my candidates you know, they're people that I actually have built good relationships with over a number of years. Um, but I have to think about sort of that altruism part of it is, you know, what's a benefit for the community that I live in, um, and more broadly, what's a benefit to the country. Like again, and that ties to things like strategic voting when the time comes as well. 
So what's happening now that we've had this sort of anticlimactic period, right? The um, elections come and gone. Uh, there were a lot of promises made. There's still a big push to actually hold the existing government to a lot of the promises that were made, and that's what Evidence for Democracy is working on right now. And it's always a test of an organization that, that rises to the fore under very strong extenuating circumstances. You know, how do they sustain the momentum over time? So right now there are um, three major, if you go to the current campaigns, um, there's three major ones that are happening right now. Um, Save Cocker Canada has to do with uh, medical issues in Alberta. Uh, I'm not as familiar with that one. I tend to be very focused you know, on my own backyard sort of things for evidence for democracy. The science pledge is still there and it's still, still relevant, it's still current, it's still a viable issue. Uh, the most recent one, though, is safeguarding science integrity. And that's a letter that you can sign that actually uh, deals with the issue of the federal government actually ensuring that it's um, protecting government scientists' right to speak. That's still an outlawed issue for the federal government. Uh, and lastly, some core tenets. Um, that beautiful Science Eater there actually was done by a local artist. She's um, in the Murgatroyd building off of Venables. If you ever do the culture crawl, you stand culture crawl. Um, she actually has a studio there. And she came to the rally that I organized in 2013. And I remember seeing this poster, you know, this placard being held up, Stand Up for Science. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. What a way to epitomize all things Canada in one swoop. Um, and uh, she actually has this in her studio, and she let me take a picture of it so I could actually have it for presentations. Um, and I do a lot of public presentations on the conservation side of things. Actually, I work with uh, the K through uh, seven programs in school periodically. And yes, I happen to really feel that the message Lorax has is still really relevant, no matter what the age of the audience, which is basically, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing's going to get better. It's not. So that speaks, it, it may be a very sort of frivolous way of, of couching things, but the point is that, again, do not expect that somebody else is going to deal with these things for you. Certainly support those who are actually doing the work, um, but sometimes you actually have to be the voice and be part of that voice at the same time. And last but not least, sorry, it's a bit blurry here. Um, Fact-based information is the fuel democracies run on, the raw material from which societies identify problems and construct solutions. Uh, and that's from Pew, um, Pew Research and Pew Survey uh, in the United States, Pew Foundation, which does a lot of really important um, survey work on a regular basis. They did a huge piece on uh, science and society in the United States over the last couple of years, which is really interesting. You can go and find that on the website. Yeah. All right, so, of course, the mandatory plug. There you go. Um, so I do urge you to check out the Evidence for Democracy website. Um, do add your voice to the existing campaigns if you haven't done so already. And if you want, you can you can email me. Um, the organizer Ulrich has the, my email address, and I can pass you on to the folks in Ottawa. Um, I'm a volunteer with Evidence for Democracy. I'm kind of, you know, helping to keep things rolling here on the West Coast. Um, and I reminded them too, just even recently this past week, that uh, 
they need to remember that there's regional differences and needs across Canada when it comes to the work that they do. And I know that one of the things that I've constantly raised with them is a need to actually be more engaging with uh, other groups, such as First Nations. That's a huge issue that's been left out of the conversation in Canada with the work that they do. And I think given the amount of uh, work that First Nations are doing in BC right now, um, it's really a conversation that they need to have. So that's where I'm going to leave things with. And so remember, I had a couple of questions for you about you know, whether or not things have been actualized in the way that we have thought they would be. Thank you. It's like Pamela.